Um, <clears throat> today's reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 19, uh, verses 11 to 20. The sons of Sceva. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the Jesus itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And all this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Before we start the preaching of God's word today, I think um, in light of what happened in France this weekend, it would be appropriate for us just to pause and pray for that country and all the horrific things that have been happening. So I, I think as a church, it's appropriate that we would weep with those who weep. And certainly we're, we know there are many weeping in the country of France. Let me, let me just pray first for them, and then we'll dive into the Word. Uh, Father, we are reminded from what's happened in France over the course of this weekend that our life on here, on this earth, is but a mist. That we never know what might happen. We don't even know that we'll make it through the next hour that we're here together today. There's no guarantees, and certainly the people in France have been reminded of that this week, and and we know that there are many today who are hurting because they've lost a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter. Many more are grieving because loved ones that they know and care for so much are hurting, and so we pray that you would comfort them today. We also pray, though, that there would be a spiritual awakening that would take place through this, that there would be a reminder to the people of France and to the people around the world that our life on this earth is limited and that there's no guarantee that we have tomorrow. And so we're praying that now as the people of France are looking for answers and looking for peace and looking for hope, we're praying that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high in that country. Uh, We know as believers in Christ that our only hope in situations like this is not that we can come up with counter-terroristic measures or that we can come up with a better plan to protect ourselves, but our only hope is found in the fact that you are a good God who sent your son Jesus to die for us so that we might have hope. And so we're praying that that message would be lifted high in France. We're not praying that to the exclusion of taking care of people who are hurting, even if they're non-Christians. We pray that Christians would come alongside and minister to them and care for their wounds and tend to them. But we are praying that there would be a proclamation by the church in France of the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. And so we pray for those in the country who do not know Christ. We pray that even in the midst of this tragedy that they would somehow be comforted. But ultimately we pray that they would be directed towards the hope we have in Christ. For those who are believers, we pray that they would stand up and without apology, but with boldness, but also at the same time humility and gentleness, offer up the hope that is found in the gospel of your son Jesus Christ. 
And so, Father, we, we want to pray for this country. We know that in recent years, perhaps, there has been very little spiritual activity. And so we pray that this would start a revival in the country of France. That the Holy Spirit would work in new ways, in fresh ways, that people in France might come to know and hear of Christ as Lord. But we also know that this has implications for us, too, living here. We know that we too are living on borrowed time, that our, our time is really only as long as you'll have us here, and that we should not be presumptuous to think that we'll go here and do this or that when we know that our life is but a mist. And so may this be a reminder to every person in this room today that we desperately need you. And to that end, we pray for our preaching from your word today. We know these are not just idle words. These are not just things that we look at when we should on Sundays, but rather we know that in these words there's life, and there's life that can be found even in the worst of days. Father, we pray that we would trust you. We do love you, and we do pray that today as we look at this, um, what I would describe as an unusual passage in the book of Acts 19, that we would have a greater hope in who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the years, my dad has collected a pretty impressive array of stories. He lived for a couple years in Brazil in his 20s, and then he's been a veterinarian for almost 40 years. And almost all of his great stories center around those two things. He has tales of giant acondas in the Amazon rainforest, or anacondas, I should say. He has stories of treating lions and kangaroos and monkeys, all of them in Iowa, by the way. And he has other antidotes in which he battled against crazy weather to treat cows and horses in the middle of the night. But as good as my dad's stories are, and he has some good ones, I think they all take a back seat to what we read here in Acts chapter 19. If you're looking for a story that is captivating, at the same time a little bit bizarre and meaningful, then this is the story for you. If you're the type of person who thinks, you know what, the Bible is pretty boring, then I would submit to you that you have not read enough passages like Acts 19. There is nothing boring about this passage. And so there's really no need to go into some introduction here to get our attention. The story in and of itself will grip our attention. It will do so quickly. So let's start here in verses 11 and 12. And I think you'll notice right away that there are some unusual things happening in this story. Verse 11. Again, let me remind you as we read, this is the word of God. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. All right, so let's pause here, and let's just acknowledge something that we all know is true. This is unusual, right? This is strange. People's illnesses are being healed. Their demons are being cast out because these afflicted ones are merely touching the handkerchiefs or aprons of Paul. This is not normal. I'm guessing that you've probably not experienced this. If you're driving in the car on the way and and your husband or your spouse blew their nose and you touched their handkerchief, you probably weren't automatically healed, right? This does not happen on a normal basis. Now, this is not the first time something like this has happened in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, people are clamoring to get in the shadow of Peter because they're under the presumption if somehow they can just fall in his shadow, they will be healed. And throughout the book, there are miraculous signs and wonders that take place. And so the question that probably is on the tip of all of our minds, or the tip of our tongue, I guess, at the top of our minds, the question that we're all wondering is this, what in the world are we to make of this as 21st century Christians? Should we expect that these types of miraculous things would happen today? Should we be concerned if they're not happening? By the way, I know that for many in this room, that is not an academic question. 
For many at New Hope, this is something that you've been actively wrestling with for a long period of time. And so I think it's worth addressing here as it's clearly in the text to preach through the book of Acts without at some point bringing up these miraculous signs and wonders would, in my opinion, be an oversight. Because again and again throughout the book of Acts, we see these miraculous things taking place. And so given the prevalence of these miracles, these signs and wonders, I think it's worth addressing. Now that said, I want to be careful here. I don't think the main point of this passage is the signs and miracles. I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is that the gospel changes the way we live. In fact, as you go towards the end of Acts 19, 11 to 20, that's obviously, I think, the point. That the gospel changes the way we live. And so when you leave today, I hope that you're not thinking about miraculous signs and wonders. I hope you're thinking about how the good news of Jesus Christ should change the way you live. All right, so I don't want to stray too far here from what I think is the main point. But given the fact that the book of Acts so often has these signs and wonders, given the fact that many at New Hope are wrestling with this, and given the fact that this text in particular addresses it, I think it's worth taking a little diversion here and asking the question, what are we to make of these signs and wonders? And really, I think there are two questions we want to ask. Number one, is it possible that these types of things could happen today? That's one question. The second is this, should we expect that these types of things would happen today? Those are two different questions. Now, the first, I think, is fairly easy. Is it possible that these types of things that could happen, that handkerchiefs and aprons could heal people, that demons could be cast out in spectacular fashion like this? I think the answer to those questions is yes. Yes, it's possible. I don't see any reason for us to think that these things couldn't happen today. I know some would say that these types of miraculous activities ceased with the apostles, that once the apostles passed away, that era is done. But biblically, I, I don't know that we can make that case. And so is it possible? The answer is yes. The second question is much more complex. Should we expect that these types of miraculous things would happen today? Now, it's a complicated question. And I think to answer that, I want to point you back to the passage here. I want to make some observations from Acts 19, because I think that will help us to answer the question. So let me just make three observations here. All right, the first is this. Notice the language that Luke, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, notice the language he uses to describe these miracles. All right, look at verse 11. Now, Luke is known for being meticulous with his language. All right, so check out what he says in verse 11. He says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Uh, I don't think it's an accident here that he refers to these miracles as being extraordinary. Now, that language is interesting if you think about the definition of a miracle. Dictionary.com defines miracle in this way. It says, it's an effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause. So by its definition, then, a miracle is an extraordinary event. So what's going on here? Is Luke just being redundant? Is he being a little sloppy with his language, an extraordinary miracle? I don't think so. Again, Luke was meticulous. He was known for his attention to detail. And so I think the reason why he says this is an extraordinary miracle is to communicate something to us. That even amongst miracles, which are in and of themselves extraordinary, this is an extraordinary miracle. So I think it would be presumptuous for us to think that we regularly should expect people to be healed by handkerchiefs and aprons. Even Luke who, by the way, is being inspired by the Holy Spirit here. Even he says this is an extraordinary miracle. So that's one observation. Here's the second. Notice that these miraculous acts are connected to a preaching of the gospel. Now, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of this observation. 
Look at what happens both before and after, right? You have this miracle taking place in 11 and 12, but you need to see what happens right before this and right after this. Verses 8 to 10, all right? Luke, or Acts 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months, this is Paul speaking, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Right? So right before this happens, what's happening? Paul is preaching the good news of Christ. Now look at the way this passage ends. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Listen, this is not an accident. You have this miraculous activity, and it is bracketed on both ends by a proclamation of the good news of Christ. Now, we've observed this throughout the book of Acts, but Paul and his communions are regularly, boldly, and unapologetically preaching that Christ is the Savior. And I think it's not an accident that that preaching comes before the miracle. I think you can make an argument from passages like Acts 14.3 and Romans 15.19 and even this passage in Acts 19 that the main purpose of these signs and wonders was to confirm the truthfulness of the gospel message or to authenticate it. That's not to say it wasn't true without the signs and miracles, but it's just giving testimony. It was saying this is true and we see these miracles. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He says, it's perfectly clear that in the New Testament times, the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs, wonders, and miracles of various characters and descriptions. And so what we're saying is that the preaching of the gospel is connected to these miracles. Now, I think there's a word of caution here. The word of caution is this. As Matthew 7 would point out, not every miraculous sign is an authentication of a message. Lest you think I'm just cherry-picking here, let me read directly from Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. This is a sobering passage. Jesus says this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So hear me, we shouldn't assume that just because something miraculous is taking place, that that means that the message is true. Matthew 7 would say there'll be some who will do these miraculous things and they won't even know Christ. All right, so we have to be careful here. On the other hand, we shouldn't assume that just because a, a message is not accompanied by signs and wonders that that's a false message. Many times in the New Testament, they preach there are no signs and wonders, but the message is still true. So hear me here. I'm, I'm qualifying this a little bit. The presence of the miraculous does not mean that the message is true necessarily. On the other hand, the absence of the miraculous doesn't mean the message is false. What we are saying then is this. The true signs and wonders that are being done for the glory of God are meant to authenticate or bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel message. That's what we're saying here. They're meant to exalt the name of Christ and highlight the work of Christ on the cross. So if you know of someone who's accomplishing miraculous signs and wonders and they're doing so apart from pointing to the name of Jesus and apart from pointing to the work of Christ on the cross, be very concerned. Be very concerned because true signs and wonders authenticate or bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel message. They're not disconnected. All right, so that's the second observation. Here's the third. Clearly, the miraculous work here is attributed to God. Again, look at Luke's language in verse 11. And God, 
I'm, I'm emphasizing there, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God is the one doing the miracles through the hands of Paul. In fact, in this passage, Paul is very passive. Right? He doesn't really do anything in terms of the casting out of demons or healing. Right? He's not going around, he's not speaking here or touching people to make the demons come out. Instead, we're, we're not even sure that he's handing out his handkerchiefs or aprons. It seems like he's probably not. He's doing absolutely nothing. It's his handkerchiefs and aprons that are healing. And this is done to communicate something to us. These miraculous works are entirely the work of God. And listen, it's still the case today that when something miraculous happens, it is a work of God. Again, beware of the one who claims to have a power on their own. Beware of the one who exalts their own tendency to do the extraordinary because true miraculous works come from the hand of God. So putting all that together, what's the answer to the question? Should we expect that these signs and wonders would take place today? Should we expect that things like what we read here in Acts 19 would happen? I think the answer to that question is yes, but with some qualifications. Yes, we should expect that God will do miraculous things. Yes, we should expect that he will attend to the preaching of his word in miraculous ways. And we should pray that he would do so. And frankly, as I was getting ready for this message, I was convicted that I don't pray this enough. That I don't pray for God to do extraordinary things to bear witness to the truthfulness of his message. So yes, I think we should expect. But I do think there's some qualifications. And they're based on the observations I made. First of all, I don't think we should expect that these things would necessarily be normal or regular. By their definition, according to Luke here, these are out of the ordinary for miracles even. Right? Miracles in themselves are extraordinary. And this one, he says, is extraordinary in and of itself. And so I don't think we should say that every day we'll see things like this happen. Secondly, I think we should remember that the purpose of signs and wonders is to authenticate the gospel message, not to satisfy our curiosity or to feed our egos. When these things happen, they will happen to bear witness to remind people that Jesus died on the cross for sin. This explains, I think, why you'll see more activity happening on the mission field in places where the gospel's never been before. This is just... By way of experience, my friends who are missionaries, particularly in places where the gospel has never been, seem to see a lot more of this type of activity. Dreams, visions, healings, casting out of demons. Why? Because I think what's happening is that the message of the gospel is being confirmed as truthful. It's a reminder to the people around where it's first breaking in that this message is true. Now that's not to say God can't use or won't use signs and wonders here. It's just to say that it makes sense in areas where the gospel is first breaking in, this type of activity would happen more often. And then finally, as a qualification, I would say this. When miracles happen, it will be the work of God. Not us, not some gifted teacher, not some television evangelist. The person who claims to be able to perform signs and wonders on their own is likely a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because miraculous works, signs and wonders, these are the works of God. Right? We can't just conjure up miracles. It doesn't work like that. We should not think, I can do signs of wonder because I'm gifted and I'm empowered and I'm something. No. It is God who does the miraculous. It is God who still is the one who's doing things that we can't explain. And so we need to recognize that the power is his own. And we need to be very careful here to think that we can just conjure up these miracles. And in fact, this passage is a grave warning to that because look at what happens next. And so all of that kind of serves as the backdrop here. I think it's an important discussion to have because of what I mentioned, but it serves as the backdrop for what we read in verse 13. All right, check this out. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now this part of the passage is captivating. Listen, if you are a junior high boy and you're thinking the Bible is boring, read Acts 19 again. This is pretty fascinating, right? What's going on here is unusual. You have this group of traveling Jewish itinerant exorcists. That's a pretty interesting job description, right? I doubt you've ever met anyone who when they whip out their business card, they say, I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. This is an unusual job. They're casting out demons. They're traveling around to do so. And they see what's happening with Paul, and they're interested, which makes sense. That's good business, right? If your job is to cast out demons, and you see someone who's seemingly doing it with handkerchiefs or aprons, you should probably pay attention. And that's exactly what they do. They're like, whoa, this this guy knows what he's doing. And so they see that this is happening in the name of Jesus. And so in an effort to maximize their their efforts, and probably to maximize their profits, they decide, we're going to start casting out demons in the name of Jesus too. This doesn't go so well for them. Among this group is uh, uh, seven sons of the Jewish high priest, Siva. Now, what happens with them ought to give all of us a little bit of pause here. This is how the demons respond to their attempts. They say, we know about Jesus. Uh, We're familiar with Jesus. And we recognize Paul. But who are you? Now, here's just a question to ponder here. and, And we'll move on quickly. But I wonder, what would the demons say about you? Are they aware of your activity? Are you one who's advancing the kingdom of God that they would say, oh yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that person? Or would they say about you, would they say, who is that? Listen, there's a warning here, I think. These guys are trying to manipulate the name of Jesus and the demons are like, we don't even know who this is. Now it's interesting that the demons know who Jesus is. Remember in James, it says that even the demons believe there's a God. So they're well aware of who Jesus is. And make no mistake, Just because you have a head knowledge of who Jesus is doesn't mean anything. If you're here today and you know all the facts about Jesus dying on the cross for sin, but you've never submitted to his reign, you're in the same spot as the demons. You're opposed to God. Because it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's an actual submission. It's a trusting in him. It's a believing in him. This is what makes us right with Christ. And so there's a warning here. The demons know Jesus, but knowing Jesus doesn't really mean anything. And they don't know who these sons of Siva are. And clearly, things don't go well for the sons of Siva. We're told that the man with the evil spirit leaps on the seven sons and overpowers them, and they leave the scene both naked and wounded. Now listen, you have to love the description of the Bible sometimes, right? I mean, Luke could have just said they left the scene wounded and humiliated, and that would have been enough. But he wants to drive the point home here. They leave wounded and naked. It's safe to say that they were humiliated, right? When you come into a fight fully clothed and healthy and you leave naked and beaten up, that's not a good fight for you. As Pastor Matt Chandler said in reference to this passage, here's a general rule. If when the fight started, you were wearing pants, and when it was over, you were no longer wearing pants, you lost the fight. I think that's true, right? That's definitely true. This is a humiliating defeat for the sons of Siva. And in that humiliating defeat, we are reminded of some important facts here. The demons are no laughing matter. Only in Christ can we possibly have victory. There's this one demon that we can tell, or at least one man possessed by a demon, and he overpowers the seven sons of Siva, and he gives them an epic beatdown. 
right? These demons are no laughing matter. And we should not think that we shouldn't just casually or flippantly try to use Jesus' name to perform some cool tricks or to impress people. It's possible that you may get away with that for a little while. In fact, Matthew 7 may say that you get away with that for quite a while. But at the end of the day, you will be exposed and humiliated and utterly defeated. You cannot conjure up miraculous works. True signs and wonders come from the hand of God. And this passage serves as a sobering reminder of that truth. Now, one other thing we might say about the sons of Siva. While it seems appropriate, I think, for us to pray for signs and wonders, we can't lose track of the fact that it's far more important that we actually know Jesus. Luke 10, 20, Jesus says this. It's in the course of, he's talking about casting out demons. He says this. He says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that, there's a word for us. There's a word for us. The greater or more important miracle is not that we cast out demons or that we heal sick people. It's that we're reborn and we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. That's the more important thing. And so if you're thinking, wouldn't it be cool if I could cast out demons? Wouldn't it be awesome if I could heal people? Well, listen, the more important thing is that you actually know who Christ is. That you should have a relationship with him. That's why Jesus says in Luke 10, don't rejoice that the demons flee. Rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. And so from the sons of Steve, we're reminded, the miracle that you should be most concerned with is that you would go from death to life. And listen, some of you in this room today, you are dead spiritually. You are separated from God because of your sin. And the only hope you have is that by miraculous rebirth, you could be born again. Oh, and I pray that would happen today. I do. I pray that you would leave here and there would be a miracle and that you would be reborn. That's the miracle that we should be striving for. And that's the miracle we should be most concerned with. Now that said, the community takes notice. There's some strange stuff going on. And it's not surprising that the community takes notice of this. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the community hears about what has happened. And that's not surprising, right? When people are being healed with handkerchiefs and aprons and seven sons are being beaten by one man, word's going to spread. Which, by the way, was probably not good for the sons of Siva. They're already humiliated enough, and now everyone around town is talking about this defeat, right? This is not good for them. The community hears, though, and things start to happen. Fear falls. Fear of God falls, and the name of Jesus is exalted. It's extolled. And what happens next, I think, is instructive for us. The believers, when the name of Jesus is lifted high, what do they do? They start confessing, and they start repenting. Now, just by way of backdrop, something you probably need to know, during this time period, the city of Ephesus was known for its fascination with magic and the dark arts, sorcery, witchcraft. And apparently, some of the believers had formerly, or maybe even currently, were involved in this magic, in this sorcery, in this witchcraft. And so they come here, and they start to divulge their secrets. They confess and they divulge their secrets. Now, that's a big deal. In Ephesus, as in other ancient cities, maybe even now, I'm not sure, it was considered that if you rendered your spells, if you divulged your secrets, those spells would become useless. 
Now, that's a big deal because that means that they lost money. These spells would be worth money. So the fact they're coming and they're confessing and they're divulging their secrets is rendering these spells useless, which means they're losing money. And it doesn't stop there. They then burn all of their magic books. We're told that it totals about 50,000 pieces of silver, which if we were to try to translate into modern terms is about $7 million. I mean, this is a big deal. And it's the actions of these believers that I want us to focus on for the rest of our time today. Now, listen, no doubt there's a lot going on in the passage. There's the miracles, there's the demons, but I don't want us to be distracted by that. I don't want you to be looking over here at the miracles or the demons and miss the point. The point is that the gospel, when it grips us, it will change us. It will change us. It changes those who believe. The more we see and know who Jesus is, the more our lives will be different. In verse 17, Jesus' name is exalted. In verses 18 to 20, the believers change. Right? The gospel penetrates deeper into their hearts. They may already be believers, but now it's sinking deeper. The name of Jesus is being exalted, and they start changing. Notably, they do it in two ways. They confess, and then they live differently. And in that, I think there's a pattern for us. That's where I want us to camp out here. I want us to think about these two things. That if the gospel gets a hold of you, you will confess and you will live differently. All right, so let's go back and revisit both of those. Look first at verse 17. If the gospel gets a hold of us, we will start confessing sin. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now get this, verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So fear comes upon the people. The name of Jesus exalted. And what do they do? They start confessing sin. Now you might wonder, what's the connection here? How does a more accurate picture of Jesus lead to confess sin? How does a better understanding of the gospel cause us to divulge the things that we struggle with and acknowledge our sin? Well, here's the connection, I think. As we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ more, it frees us up to stop pretending that we're something we're not. Think about the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we have rebelled against a perfect and holy God. And there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right. We sin against Him regularly. We sin against Him daily. We sin against Him willfully. We sin against Him by nature and by choice. And there is nothing. And when I, when I say nothing, what I mean is nothing. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. But we have hope because God sent His Son Jesus who died on the cross for sin. Listen, you're not a pretty good person who needs help. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You can do nothing. But God sent His Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins so that you could have new life. And if you believe in Jesus, you can be rescued from your sin. It's by His grace, His grace, His undeserved favor, that you can be rescued from your helpless state. And if you get that, if you understand the gospel, you will realize the only thing you can stand on is the cross of Jesus Christ. You won't start boasting that you're kind of a good person or that you sometimes do good things or that you're sort of religious. No, the only thing you will stand on if you are a Christian is the work of Christ, period. Only by grace have you been saved. Galatians 6, Paul says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means practically is this. You can drop the pretense. You can take off the mask. Listen, some of you, throughout the week, your life is a mess. Right? Your marriage is in shambles. Your kids are running wild. Your job 
you're miserable. Right? You come here on Sunday and you put this mask on. And you pretend like you got it all together. Spiritually, you don't feel connected to God at all. Maybe you feel dead spiritually. But when you walk in this building, for some reason you feel this need to put this mask on and pretend like it's all good. But I'm just saying, if we understand the gospel, we can drop the pretense. And we can start confessing sin. Because, and here's why, we know that we stand on the work of Christ anyway. That is our only hope. Listen, if you're here today and you think we're impressed by your morality, we're impressed by your good deeds, we're impressed by your attendance, I just want to let you in on a little secret. We're not. At least if we're thinking biblically, right? Because we know that the only way we can stand is on the work of Christ alone. And so let's just stop with the pretending. Let's confess what everyone who's ever read this book knows already, that you are messed up. You are. You're a sinner saved by grace. Let's acknowledge that. Let's be real about this. Let's be a church that confesses sin. And here's why. Here's why this is so important. Because sin will destroy your soul. It will. It's entirely possible that if sin goes unchecked in your life, it will lead to your destruction. Earlier this week, John Piper tweeted this. He said, No biblical writer has a view of eternal security that makes it superfluous to warn professing Christians they can make shipwreck of their faith. What Piper is saying is this, that while we may believe that genuine believers will persist in their faith, one of the evidences that we are genuine believers is that we do persist in our faith. And so that's why we warn each other, don't wander down the path of sin. That's why we warn each other, don't make shipwreck of your faith. And one of the quickest ways you can make shipwreck of your faith is to let sin go unchecked in your life. Sin will destroy. It will eat you from the inside out. And make no mistake about it, sin thrives in darkness. It thrives in darkness. Unconfessed sin, hidden sin, is a foothold for the devil. As Ephesians 5 would say, we need to bring our sin to light so that we can start to deal with it. And when we do that, that's actually a sign that God's working. One of my summer professors, Dr. Robert Plummer, he told us a story in my Greek class that I'll never forget. Dr. Plummer taught both New Testament and Greek, and as part of his Greek class, you would have to, um, or, or the way that we would take tests is he would give us a take-home test. Not for every test, but for some tests. And so you would have this sealed envelope, and once you open the envelope, the instructions were that you could not consult any outside resources, you could not look at the internet, you could not look at anything. It was just you and this test for 90 minutes. And the first time I took the test, I thought, wasn't that a little bit naive of Dr. Plummer? I mean, did he really think that no one would cheat on the test? I mean, yeah, sure, we were at a seminary. You would hope that most future pastors would be honest, right? But surely, I thought, someone is going to cheat on this. But looking back, I think that was actually part of his plan. Because I think he was teaching us not just how to parse Greek, but he was teaching us to do the right thing even when no one was looking. And so, at first, I thought it was a little bit naive, but the more I look back, I realized that was kind of a brilliant plan, because I think what he's trying to teach us is that what you do when no one else is watching is far more important than your mastery of Greek. Nevertheless, not surprisingly, there were some students who did cheat, and it was Dr. Plummer's story about one such student that I remember the most. What he said is there was a student who came up to him about uh, two weeks after the test and confessed. He said to Dr. Plummer, you know what, I just need to confess, I cheated on that last take-home test. And Dr. Plummer's response, I think, was incredibly wise and sensitive. This is what he said. He, he said, you know, I have to let you know, I'm going to have to fail you on the test. But I also want you to know, I'm greatly encouraged by God's work in your life. The fact that you are confessing sin and bringing it to light, that is a good sign. 
And so, brother, I want you to know that even though you're getting an F on this test, I want you to know that what is happening here is the grace of God. I'm so thankful. I look back at that and I think that was a brilliant response. Because yes, there are consequences for sin, but a wise person understands it's better to suffer the consequences of sin than it is to let sin go unchecked. And listen, surely there's a word in that for us today. A wise person understands that because we're approved by Christ, we don't need the approval of people. We don't need the approval of people. We're humble enough to recognize that anything good we have is only because of Christ anyway. And so we don't mind confessing our sin because it only confirms what everyone else knows already, that we're messed up. And it gives us an opportunity to delight in the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me be as clear as I can. I am a sinner saved by grace too. Lest you think I stand up here every week and I've got it all together, you are sadly mistaken. Oh, I am messed up. I can be selfish in my marriage, expecting things out of my wife that I don't do myself. I can be impatient and angry with my kids. I don't always assume the best of people. Sometimes I can be critical. I lack faith as evidenced by my urgency in prayer. I care way too much what you think about me. Even though I know it's about Christ and I know it's about his word, when I step down, I often wonder, what are they thinking about me? My natural tendency is to hold too tightly to money and things, thinking that they'll bring me safety and comfort. I care too much about sports and other things that are idolatrous. And listen, I could go on. I'm just getting started here, okay? And some of you could probably actually add to the list. You're like, I know some things I could add to. And you know what? You'd probably be right. You'd probably be right. But here's the good news. I am saved by grace. And I stand here as a sinner who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so, indeed, amen. There is, there's nowhere else we can go, right? And in fact, we delight in acknowledging our weakness because it highlights his strength. And we're able to say, in the cross of Christ alone we stand. And so here's the good news. If you're messed up, welcome to the club. It's not an exclusive one. In fact, it's inclusive of every person in this room. So let's stop pretending like we've got it together. And let's just acknowledge what we already know is true. We're messed up, but by God's grace and through the work of Jesus on the cross, we have hope. Listen, some of you, I'm just going to be direct here in in light of what we read in Acts 19. Some of you need to confess sin today. You do. I'm not just saying between you and God, although that may be necessary also. And probably is the primary way you should start. But you need to go home and you need to confess to your family some sin. Or you need to confess to some brothers and sisters in Christ some sin. Perhaps some of you are engaged in sexual morality that you've been involved in in the last couple months or even years and you've been able to keep it hidden. I would just urge you, for the sake of your soul, confess that sin. Perhaps others of you are greedy and materialistic or on the other end of the spectrum, stingy and hoarders. Money has got you either way. Confess that sin. Maybe others, it's an unwillingness to submit to the authorities God has placed in your life. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you're, you're wielding the authority God has given you in unbiblical ways. Confess that. Maybe for some of you, you're terrified to admit the things you're dealing with because you are struggling with pride and you care so much what people think. Confess that. Confess it. Or maybe it's something else entirely. The point is, bring it to the light. Now, will there be consequences? Of course. Of course there might be. If you go home today and you confess to your spouse that for the last several years you've been having an adulterous affair, will there be consequences? Yes, there will be. Should you do it anyway? Yes. Because bringing sin to light is far better than letting sin go unchecked. 
We want to confess sin as a means of fighting against sin and as a means of highlighting the grace of God that we rest in the cross of Christ alone. For non-Christians who are here today, you need a once and for all confession. A confession that you are a sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. For Christians, perhaps your confession needs to be more specific related to a particular sin. But listen, when the gospel gets a hold of us, we stop caring what people think and we start delighting in the fact that we have grace through Jesus. Now, I want you to think back to Acts 19. Can you imagine some of the whispers when some of them are confessing their sin and divulging their secrets? Can can you imagine? People are just saying, oh, Joseph. I didn't know Joseph was involved in magic. Or Rachel, can you believe that? Can you believe that she used to be involved in witchcraft? You're sure. In fact, I'm sure that there was all kinds of gossip that was going on. But listen, when you get the gospel, it does not matter what other people think because you delight in the approval that we have in Christ. In fact, you revel in that. And so what that means is that we can delight in appropriate confession of sin because we know that if we confess sin to one another, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's one response here to the gospel. Confess. Here's the other. Repent. Or in other words, live differently. Look at verses 19 and 20. Verse 19. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, so the simplest way to say this is they repented. As we noted earlier, what happens in verses 19 and 20 is a big deal. Not only do they confess their sin, but they start taking radical steps to reorient their life. They start bringing these books valued at around $7 million and burn them. Now maybe you'd say, well, couldn't they have just you know, sold them and then given the money to charity? But listen, this is what repentance looks like. It is radical. It's doing whatever it takes to get rid of that which is keeping you from joy in Christ. Listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't kind of pursue Christ and kind of pursue the world. To be a follower of Christ means that you see him as a surpassing treasure. And the idea of losing $7 million is nothing compared to the fear of losing your relationship with Christ. Listen, to follow Christ means that everything else becomes garbage in comparison. It means that we burn the idols that keep us from the joy in Christ. And so my question for you today is simply this. What are the idols in your life that you need to burn? I'm guessing that you probably don't literally need to burn books of sorcery, although maybe that's the case for some. But for the rest of you, figuratively speaking, what idols do you need to burn? For the Ephesians, it was magic and sorcery. But what are your idols? What are the things that are keeping you from pursuing Christ wholeheartedly? Again, I can try to offer some suggestions, but maybe it falls outside this category. Maybe for some of you, it's the approval of people. You care more what people think than what God does. Maybe for others, it's control and power. You long to have the power that only God has. Maybe for others, it's sexual morality, an addiction to pornography or other sexual sin. Maybe for some, it's money and stuff. Your love for money is crowding out your love for Christ. Maybe it's the pursuit of success. Maybe it's your family. The pursuit of setting up your kids has distracted you from a relationship with Christ. And so my question is, will you burn those idols? Now, clearly, I'm not talking about actually burning some of these idols. If you go home today and you say, I'm going to set my family on fire, then you've misunderstood my message, all right? Hear me, I'm not saying that. But figuratively, are you going to put to death these idols? Are you going to take the radical steps necessary that some people might see as crazy, right? Don't you imagine 
that when they're burning $7 million worth of books, everyone's like, whoa, they are crazy. Will you take the crazy steps necessary to reorient your life to pursue Christ? Maybe for some of you it means quitting a job or selling your stuff or getting rid of a computer or phone that feeds your lust or cutting down on the activities of your kids so you can pursue Christ more. Or maybe it just means falling on your knees and confessing your pride or your desire for control or whatever it is. The point is, if we're gripped by the gospel, we will do whatever it takes to find the joy that is in him. And here's why. Because we understand that in Christ, there is nothing that could satisfy us more than living for Jesus. When we get the gospel, we realize everything else, including these books, right, in Acts 19, are worth burning because Christ is better. And so whatever it is that's keeping you from Christ, I'll promise you this. Christ is better. Without exception. And so maybe you need to scale back those things. I'm obviously not saying you need to get rid of everything. Don't get rid of your family, for crying out loud. It's in the Bible, too, that you should take care of your family, right? But we need to think appropriately about how we can pursue Christ in a way that allows us to put to death these idols. Listen, maybe some of you here today are daily growing in your walk with Christ. Maybe you're a picture of what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit. If that's the case, praise God. But for the rest of us, I suspect that there may be some radical changes we need to make, some books that we need to burn, proverbially speaking, so that we can pursue Christ more. But this is the type of thing that happens when the gospel gets a hold of you. You start confessing sin. You start altering the course of your life. It's not just that we acknowledge that we're sinners. It's that there will be smoldering fires left behind where we put to death our idols. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I think that is the main point of this passage. It's not about the acts and miracles. It's not about the demons. It's not about these things out here. It's about the gospel changing life. And so my question for you today is not what do you think of the miracles or what do you think of this demonic activity? My question for you is this. Has the gospel, is the gospel changing your life? Are you quick to confess sin? Are you quick to acknowledge that you are a sinner saved by grace? And are you radically altering your life so that Jesus can have the utmost in priority? Listen, when the name of Jesus is exalted, things will change. And I'm praying that at this church, the name of Jesus would be extolled and then lives would look radically different. That it would be just like Acts 19. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wonderful, wonderful truths we see here. Oh, they are a hope in a dark and weary land. And we cling to these words. We cling to your word because we know your word testifies about your son, Jesus. This is where our hope is. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not stand on any other frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. It's in his name we pray. Amen.